Hello, and a very warm welcome back to Brailcast, the official podcast of the Brailers Foundation. Coming up this month... I was invited to be on a, a Zoom conference yesterday with other CEOs in Boston. And one of, the, one of the other CEOs said, I have three types of people in my organization. One is um, a group of people that are scared to death. And he said, I don't know if I'll ever get them to come back to our building. Then he said, I have other people that are kind of moderate and like, okay, we need to be careful and wear masks and follow protocols. And then he said, I have a third group of people that they're just like, I'm the caveman. I, I don't have to worry about anything. I'm just going out to tackle the world. And he said, I got to worry about them too. So like, wear your stupid mask and don't be an idiot. How to be a national braille publisher in the face of a global pandemic. Based in Boston, Massachusetts since 1927, National Braille Press is a global leader in producing high-quality, affordable Braille materials and developing innovative technologies, advancing Braille literacy for blind and visually impaired children and adults everywhere. In addition to its first-class Braille transcription facility, producing everything from standardised tests to restaurant menus, NBP has a unique specialism in producing original books by blind authors expressly for blind people, covering everything from cooking to technology. It also provides Braille transcription and production services to like-minded organisations and, through the Centre for Braille Innovation overseas, the annual Touch of Genius Prize. In adapting to public health guidelines designed to minimise the spread of COVID-19, National Braille Press has found safe ways to produce Braille for the National Library Service for the Blind and Print Disabled, part of the Library of Congress in the United States. Offering free digital downloads for both children and adults until the 31st of August, and continues to supply original titles explaining food delivery and preparation options from a blindness perspective. The Brailless Foundation in the UK was privileged to host Brian MacDonald, NBP's president, on its weekly Stay Safe, Stay Connected conference call and participants had the opportunity to ask questions about how high-quality Braille is finding its way into the hands of readers throughout these challenging times. We're pleased to present a recording of that session on this episode of Braillecast. Brian MacDonald, President of National Braille Press, a very warm welcome to you, sir. Well, thank you very much for having me. Well, it's a great pleasure. And National Braille Press, uh, for people perhaps outside of North America who don't know, you guys are a leading publisher of Braille, a supplier of Braille technology. You also provide uh, transcription uh, services and, and a whole bunch of stuff. Can you just give everybody a sense of the scale of the National Braille Press and the range of Braille related and tactile related resources and products and services with which you're involved yes of course so you're right we're a nonprofit producer and publisher of braille and tactile graphic materials and it's pretty much a focus from cradle to grave so we deal with early intervention with children and we have a children's braille book club 
And then as you continue along the line to adulthood, we have all kinds of books for adults on technology and cooking and travel and leisure activities. But we also do books for the National Library of Congress in the United States. We have tons of educational materials. We do textbooks from kindergarten through Harvard Law School and standardized assessments in the United States that are done not just in, on the state level, but on college entrance exams. So we produce hundreds of thousands of tactile graphics for those, as well as um, the testing and transcription, as you said, for all materials. And we also do business to business materials. It could be corporate documents or you know, annual reports and restaurant menus for you know, things like that. So it's a pretty broad range. And the other thing I'd add is we do have a Center for Braille Innovation that I founded about 11 years ago. It's kind of a virtual place, but through that is our Touch of Genius Prize. And we have a team of people that help with identifying emerging technologies that can help for more affordable uh, and accessible, what I call e-Braille solutions for the blind and visually impaired. And you also publish a range of Braille books written by blind people written from a blindness perspective, kind of how to, um, you know, I'm thinking about things like cooking and technology and things that are written by people in our community that are much more relatable than perhaps a mainstream title might be. That's what, and I'm not sure, but I think that we're the only publisher in the world that does that. I might be wrong. Maybe RNIB has done some of that. I should take that back since I'm talking to the UK. But we are known for having a lot of blind authors that, as you said, do all kinds of how-to books on how to use the iPhone, how to take pictures with the iPhone, how to you know learn more about iOS, new versions, and and um, Android as well. We, we're agnostic to technology platforms, but we do do a lot of that, and it's very popular, and it's one of our big features with our publications department. So you guys, you've been around a long time. You do what you do very well. You're known in this sector, and you obviously have a lot of great relationships. So how did things start to unfold for you guys in respect of the pandemic and COVID-19? Well, we're in Massachusetts, for those that uh, don't know where we're located in the U.S. And back in late February, mid-February, late February, obviously, everyone was hearing a little bit about this with all the impact in China. And then uh, as it started to spread, obviously in Europe and, and then coming here to the United States, we started making you know preparations for how this could impact us. And if you can imagine, so we have transcribers and proofreaders and office administrative people that can be in their own kind of office area, but our production floor is more complex because we use different types of technology to press Braille, use embossing of Braille, making tactile graphics, assembling the books, binding them. And there's more interaction there that is a riskier area for how we do that. So before anything in the in Massachusetts became any kind of edicts from our governors, um, we started changing our methodology in our production floor by separating equipment for more spatial distancing and going into shifts that started at 5 a.m. and then went to 9 p.m. at night to minimize the number of people in that area at any given time. And that started doing okay. And I thought, well, if we do this for a few days, people will feel comfortable about it as we progress into this disease that was ravaging the world. And the very next day after we started this process, our governor in Massachusetts said that only essential businesses could be open now. And that was pretty 
limited in what could be open or not. And most of it was relating to healthcare, obviously, you know, doctors and nurses and pharmacies and things related to healthcare. But I also looked at it from a social and educational point of view. We produce textbooks for kids and schools are going to shut down, we, we believed, and they have since, but they have distance learning going on instead. And we still want to make sure that, you know, textbooks for blind children would be available to them while their sighted peers were getting distance learning going on. So I made a plea to the governor that very day that we should be considered essential as well at National Board Press, and we were approved to be essential, just stay open. The difficulty I had was some of our people were very afraid. There was a lot of uncertainty and unknown still. This is March 23rd. Uh, we've learned a lot even in the last couple of months. But there was a lot of concern about us staying open. And true fear that I could see in some of my management team as well, not just all of our other staff. And I just was thinking, oh, if I just had two or three more days to have it the way it was, we'd probably be okay and figure this out. Because we were closing out our fiscal year, March 31st, and we had a lot of work that we wanted to get through for deadlines. And I'm not trying to sound unsympathetic to the concerns and the fear that was going on, but I was thinking it's going to get worse. Let's try and get through what we can now with our safe processes that we did. And then if we have to close, we have to close. But I could feel the tension and I made the decision that we would close for two weeks, which we did. I came in every day, my controller came in every day and we had plenty of work to do and we were figuring out things for the whole COVID process. And then we did reopen two weeks after that. And we brought in a team again of production crew. We staggered shifts between Monday, Wednesday, Fridays and Tuesday, Thursdays with the thought that if one group was struck with COVID, we'd have another group that wasn't interacting with them and we could keep going. That was the initial thought process behind it. We did develop a COVID war room, kind of, a, a, a small task force that kept track of the health of every individual and contacts. And if they had any symptoms related, possibly related to COVID, they would be quarantined. And this went on for, we've been open now for about three or four weeks, and four weeks, I guess. And, and we've been fine. And we've been slowly adding more people, making sure that we have the comfort zone there and we did apply for one of these, I don't know how much you've heard about in the UK, but there was a pretty significant business support program. We applied and were, we did get a payroll protection program loan under the United States government that if you follow procedures properly, it can be converted to a grant. So we did apply and receive one of those. It helped us bridge this gap for not having some people that could not work at all at home. They just in production or you know some role that just wasn't um, critical to be at the building right now, but we made sure they'd all be paid without any furloughs or layoffs and, and complications. Our staff are our, clearly our most important human resource that we have, especially when you talk about the training for to be a quality transcriber and proofreader, and we would never want to jeopardize losing any of them because of this kind of a disaster. So I'm happy to say that we did get that support, but it runs out, and now we have to really plan. I, I met with my management team today about gearing up and getting more people in the building and getting back to the normal output that we can do for capacity because the money will run out and we don't want to have any issues going forward. You said there, Brian, that there was a lot of fear around at the time. Did you get to a point where, you know, any of your staff felt like they really couldn't continue 
have you still got the same team that you had at the start of this or has that changed? No, I have everybody here. I, I'm happy to say that I've not lost anybody. There was significant, I mean, let's face it, we're all humans. I was invited to be on a, a Zoom conference yesterday with other CEOs in Boston from all industries, not just nonprofit, production, organic foods, all kinds of things. And we were all talking about how we're dealing with this COVID uh, challenge and how we're gearing up and how can we gear up. And one of the one of the other CEOs said, I have three types of people in my organization. One is um, a group of people that are scared to death from what they've heard. They have not left their house for, you know, 25 days. And he said, I don't know if they'll ever leave again. I'm not sure if I'll ever get them to come back to our building, even when we feel it's safe. Then he said, I have other people that are kind of moderate and like, okay, we need to be careful and wear masks and follow protocols. And then he said, I have a third group of people that they're just like, I'm the caveman. I, I don't have to worry about anything. I'm just going out to tackle the world. And he said, I got to worry about them too. So like, wear your stupid mask and follow the procedures and don't be an idiot. All of them are saying the same thing though. They have had some support maybe with the government and, but now it's like, what's your next step? The moderator said, what is your next concern? And everyone said the same thing. Sales, sales, sales. We need to make sure our pipeline isn't empty and that we don't have a big gap between getting some support to keep us going until we can regroup. So they're all fighting with the same thing about how do we safely you know, include more and more people into their physical building and who can still work remotely is a different discussion about you know, just process versus safety, ultimately, but um, they're all dealing with it. So I think we've made pretty good progress. I'm pretty happy with it. We haven't lost anybody, but clearly some of our people were very afraid. And, and now the numbers have clearly gotten better in Boston as well as in Massachusetts over the last uh, week or two, uh, significantly better. And I think the fear is becoming more normal that it's waning a little bit, but I think we're okay. I think we'll be all right. Before I open up for uh, questions here, Brian, I wanted to ask you about your clients. So your customer base, it's a mix of individual consumers and, and organizations. What's the demand for Braille services been like? Well, I, I'm happy to say we've had tremendous demand even during this period of requests for orders and mostly in the education area in that case, which is you know school systems and so forth. But you're right, we have a lot of individual blind and low vision consumers from all ages, and they have continued to order books from us. We've had limited service and being able to process and ship orders because we weren't open every day initially, and, and um, that slowed down a little bit. But I'm happy to say that on the education side, our demand is really strong. On the consumer publication side, it's good, and I think it'll be better when we have shipments going out every day versus a couple of times here or there every week, you know, but I, I feel it's been pretty steady to be honest. I'm happy about that. And you've been getting some fantastic um, publicity. I've seen, you know, a little bit of media coverage of national bail press in, in recent weeks. Yeah, I've been on, uh, we've, I was on a TV segment recently that went pretty, um, it was shared significantly across the United States and it was uh, where I was, they were curious about a different angle. We were pitching it to the media about how we're adapting. And one of the things we were able to do is the very day that I closed, I started chasing a bunch of laptops to get people to work remotely. And because of our test environment, we had to have a lot of security protocols. We had to have 
a lot of things prepared in the systems to do that. But we also were able to have one of my pressmen from his home turn on Barlow's and, and machines here so that we could run jobs where he sets up the layout properly. And I, I'm the guy turning on the machines at that point because I was one of the few people in the building. But um, we were able to run runs like that and then we could then later assemble and stitch them and so forth. So we pitched that to the media and the TV picked it up and did a nice article on us that was pretty good. And um, we've had a couple of those in the last few weeks here. We're speaking with uh, Brian McDonald, who is the president of the National Braille Press, who are a leading publisher of Braille in the US and around the world. And you do offer your services internationally, Brian. That's correct. We've shipped to many countries, uh, probably 19, 20 countries that are English-speaking countries, but we do also books in Spanish and other languages. We are expanding our strategic direction to do more of that, especially from a service point of view, where we think we could reach more people effectively and we're doing some work with other organizations in the U.S. on trying to get better standards on how teachers of the visually impaired can learn to not just teach tactile graphic literacy as well as braille literacy, but also how to make consistent best practice standards to make those tactile graphics for students and for adults in the workplace. So we think we can do a lot more internationally as well. Okay, I'm going to bring Liam in. So Liam's our moderator. We're going to invite people to raise their hands if they have uh, questions for Brian about National Braille Press and the services and, and products that National Braille Press offer. But also, more interestingly, I think, for these times is how uh, National Braille Press has adapted really well, it seems, from my perspective, to continuing to operate throughout the, uh, the pandemic. Hi, Sheila Foster. The first question is, do you use UEB Braille or the standard English Braille? And the second question is, roughly, I know you do an awful lot of work and stuff, but just say, for example, if I wanted a, a cookbook or something, um, you know, what sort of price are we talking about for well, I, I presume articles for the blind would work, but, you know, your, your fee in that, please. Sure. Well, first of all, um, in reference to our code, we do do UEB for our publications. We have certainly done English Braille American Edition in the past, but right now we do go with an international standard for using UEB. Oh, so would you do SEB on request? You know, it's tricky. I'll tell you what the complications are. We could do a run on request. I mean, if, if someone, you know, if it's, we get a lot of requests sometimes from authors that want to have their book published in Braille. And we, we will do that for them, but the price is very expensive. If you can imagine, you know, depending on what kind of run they want, if they want to do 100 books or 500 books, the, it's an expensive process to do. The same thing with any request for a different format. I mean, we can do all formats. We're, we certainly have done that um, as tests in the United States evolved over the last couple of years between students that were in high school would not have to learn UEB versus those that were coming into grade school. And we would make all formats for things like that. Brian, before you move on to pricing, I just wanted to kind of add on that. So the books you provide are, are Braille files only, or do you have other file formats that people could maybe use their screen reader to get that translation? Yeah, we do books in DAISY format. We do um, Braille BRFs that you can download um, if you have a, an electronic or different display opportunities. 
and we do hard copy. I was talking about hard copy books that we still print a lot for people. But if somebody, if, if, if really they were very wedded to a specific Braille code, I mean, the advice I offer people now is actually, you know, UEB is the international standard. It's what all new um, Braille is published in. Of course, at home, you can use whatever Braille you like. And many screen readers will have legacy Braille tables still in there or even Duxbury, you know, if you wanted to make your own. You can do that if you've got an EPUB or, or another file format, if it's just um, regular text. But obviously, where the business you, you're in is actually producing hard copy Braille and, and Braille files, and that tends to be in UEB these days. That's correct. And I, I just would add, like, so I know in reference to the Brailleists, I mean, you, first of all, I want to give a shout out to, I would love to sometime when things are different in the world, to come over there and, and meet the group because you're, uh, I've known a lot of, of about you from obviously Dave and Ed Rogers and who won the Canute, won our Touch of Genius Prize a couple of years ago, but I would love to be able to connect with everybody in person sometime. I think it'd be a lot of fun. So I just want to give a shout out to everybody there that's involved with that. To answer the second question, our books, we're a nonprofit, so we always try to sell books at a very competitive price, similar to what you'd pay in a bookstore for a print book. And we try to fundraise for that gap. So I'm gonna give you some examples. Cooking with Feeling is a book that we have that costs $9.99. Then we have, have a, a Dr. Atkins book, you know, that's $5. We have some that are $20. I'm not gonna say that we don't have higher expensive ones, but they're all pretty good. Christine Ha was a blind cook in America that won a TV show kind of celebrity cook thing and her book is $10.50. So I think we're very competitive for the price of our books and not just cooking, but all, all things that we produce. And you provide a free update as well. So I, I received this update telling everybody, you know, what's new from national Braille press and that comes over the ocean. Yes, it does. And we're getting one ready for the summer, (laughs) summer picks. Yeah. Did you say that you also produce your books on on Daisy so we'd be able to sort of play them from a USB or CD or something? Yes, that's correct. And you can download them too. It all depends what people have capability of doing. But we do make Daisy formats as well as, and we do send books on USB to people that, you know, it depends on what they need. So we're pretty flexible that way. Thank you very much. You're welcome, Sheila. And could I just clarify the Daisy books that you send out, Brian? Um, this is Matthew here. Are they text-only Daisy books, or are they Daisy books with audio as well? No, they're with audio as well. Okay, that's good. Thank you. Would and um, would it be an actual um, human being reading? We don't record the books. No, that's a different process. So it would have to be speech. Oh dear. Which one to choose, the, the synthetic speech or the UEB? <laughs> thank you very much, Brian. That's, that's great. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you, Sheila. And uh, I think next uh, with our hands up is Terry. How are you doing, Terry? My question is, do you have any sort of virtual tour of your facility, um, a video of, of your facility and how it works? Because I'd be... I'm in Illinois, and I would love to come and tour the plant sometime. But aside from that, do you have any sort of a virtual something that I can look at to understand what you do and how you do it? 
we've done a few before. We've done them with audio only, and we've done a, um, a, a video one as well. Um, but we are, I just, we just talked about this in my management meeting about three weeks ago that we need to do a new one and update it because we've added a lot of different equipment in our production facility downstairs and we've changed some of the process we do and we just think we need to update it. I, I've done a couple of them myself with uh, the Mass Commission for the Blind where we did a kind of a tour of National Braille Press for radio and things like that. And when things open up, which I'm hopeful they will in the in the months ahead, we do do physical tours for people visiting Boston as well, just so you know, but you don't just show up. You have to make an appointment, but we do do them for individuals as well as groups. Right. Great. Good to know that. And also, I just want to say thank you. During April, you offered free of charge a couple of books that are very timely during this period and uh, would be very helpful to people. So I want to thank you for doing that. They were books written by people who are blind, and they're excellent books. And and thank you for making those readily available to people. That was very kind of you to do that. Well, thank you. We've extended it through August, and we, we're going to have six books total that we're letting people download for free just because we think it was very well received. We thought everyone being sheltered in their homes, could use something to read that was hopefully entertaining and, and helpful. So thank you for the comment. Um, we've got a lot of good uh, feedback from that, and we're going to continue it for a while. Any more questions for Brian? Yeah, there's one from Mel here. Hiya. I came across an article in the Boston Globe, and it just mentioned that you donate books to third world countries sometimes. And... Um, I just wondered how that worked to the Braille, only because I've got a friend who reads Braille in French and English, but she's been learning Lingala, and she's found it almost impossible to get Braille from a poor-speaking area because a lot of blind people aren't taught Braille because they need money for the education. And I, I just found that interesting, and I just wondered if I could have a bit more information about that. Yes, most of the... I mean, we get requests from... You know, small, could be a school for the blind or, or maybe just a teacher that has some blind children and they'll write us generally, sometimes email us asking for donations of, quite frankly, any material. And it's in a lot of developing countries, as you can imagine. And I mean, I had one person who had some kind of grant from his country to come to the U.S. and I met with him in, in our building and he was, he just wanted paper. He said, we can't even have get paper for people to use a slate and stylus, you know? So he was thrilled to death. We gave him brand new high quality paper that we use and he just filled a suitcase with it, literally. Uh, so it's not even just books, it's even materials. So we do what on demand send to different countries, but we don't transcribe to all these different languages, as you were kind of implying. We send overruns of books that we have that are in English, and we do when we have books that we've done in Spanish or we've done some in French and other languages, we, we could do that. But it's not like we're translating all of the regular products we do into different languages because that would be, as you can imagine, extremely expensive. Would it be something that perhaps as English people, when we because often we read a, a Braille book, I'm not blind myself, but then my blind friends tell me after they recycle it because it's just so big. Would it be something that we could do, perhaps send to other countries, repost after it's been read rather than recycling? 
Well, I'll be honest, for us to manage that would be kind of difficult because we have our own space constraints in our building and because we're producing millions of pages that we of brand new books that we have to store and ship in our own inventory. And if we had people randomly sending us books, you know, I guess it wouldn't probably be a, a big problem. We could fill up a pallet of them and, and do that and store them over time. But it's not an easy way for us to do it. We usually will ship a large volume of a type of book at a time to a school so that all the students could read the same book and have some kind of consistency with training and learning that way versus one book of one subject or something like that. Because we usually are focusing on schools more than individuals the way it works. That's really interesting. Thanks for that. You're welcome. And I think Matthew has a quick comment on that. He's just let me know over text. Yeah, hi, Liam. I just wanted to know what your relationship, Brian, was with Sightsavers International. I don't know if they're very big in America, but certainly over here, they are quite a big charity. And I know that they send a lot of books overseas. And so that might be another channel by which you could um, get books out to other countries. Right. No, I think that I I know of them. I, I clearly do, but I don't know them. You know, I I don't know every organization as well as I should, I suppose, but um, I think that makes sense. And I, I did know that they do that. And I think even some of the other organizations in the U.S. Um, probably do that on occasion with requests. It isn't like every week we get that request. It's infrequent. You know, it could be once or twice a month, maybe. Um, in fact, I can. I know we've been a little bit shut down since March, but. I haven't seen any requests since I've we, we, we've been dealing with COVID. Maybe that's part of the issue, but that's a good point. And I, I don't uh, disagree. I should get to know them better anyway. Lovely. And um, Ed, Ed Rogers. Yeah, you mentioned um, about the Touch of Genius Prize. And one of the things that I think would be interesting to hear is some of the sort of lower tech end of things which you have awarded prizes for over the years which are for for the promotion of braille use and and braille learning and if you've got any favorites well sure um for those that aren't familiar with it the touch of genius prize is a prize that we started in 2007 and it's funded by a private family foundation um the gibney family foundation a a family in, in america and they funded it for all these years, which is amazing, hundreds of thousands of dollars. And we, we give out a prize, a cash prize, to winners every year. The Canute won with Ed, um, 2017, I guess it was at this point. Oh, no, 2018. 2018 but 2018, we're, we're, it was in 2019, but it's a 2018 prize cash that we give out the following. That was, our, um, that was our second attempt. The first time we couldn't afford the postage, so we didn't actually send you but 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 the touch of genius itself is a prize awarded not just for like hardware and and software technology as ed was saying Uh, it could be a curriculum that was developed a better way to teach braille or or perhaps tactile graphics and and sometimes very low-tech things as well one winner that we had a few years ago was actually the tactile caliper that i know some people in in the UK, we're looking at a, a version of that that was metric, but we did the original imperial version in inches and with a couple PhD students from MIT. And I would tell you, it's amazing in that you slide, like a slide rule, you slide this slide across the top of the ruler and you measure their braille in inches in this case with you know braille, tactile braille for one, two, three, but the slide itself shows the numerator to the 16th of an inch 
of what you've measured between these two calipers, uh, a fixed end on the left and the sliding one that has a jaw that sticks out. So you measure between these two jaws like a regular caliper. And we've sold a gazillion of them in America and they're really effective, they're durable, they've lasted a long time. So that's a, I was really happy. Um, I touch genius prize is part of our center for braille innovation where we try and look for emerging technologies and things to help braille. I worked with those guys for two and a half years before we even had it finally ready to go to market. And we were very happy with that. It was a great product. So that's a simple example, as you're saying, Ed, but others have been all different purposes. So do you have any thoughts about how now, particularly with the pandemic, we get people started with Braille, with social distancing. You know, in the UK, we're being told to keep two meters apart, um, which obviously makes, you know, hands-on learning Braille problematic. Do you have any thoughts about how we encourage people to start learning Braille at the moment? Well, I'll tell you one thing that I started a couple of years ago with my publications department. We're focusing more on adults that are losing vision later in life as well. And one of our strategic initiatives is to have a kit, basically, for adults that still loved to read and would like to learn to read Braille, even at an older age. And so we've talked about having different components in it that help them as a blind person, not just in technology and using phones to help with, you know, be my eyes and things like that, but also how to learn functional Braille even, how to, you know, and we, we talked about making it jumbo Braille, larger Braille, so they can practice learning on that with labels that were already pre-developed for them to put on salt and pepper and, you know, parts of their kitchen and things like that. But we also started um, about two years ago, making uncontracted, short, very short little stories for adults to practice that are learning Braille, because that would help them, I think, in their just reading practice, like with anything. Um, so that we still have, and I, 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 it's stories for adults that are interesting and funny and, and not children's content. So it's, <laughs> it would keep people's attention a little bit more than uh, reading a, we have a lot of adults that learning braille when they start and they buy our children's braille books because they're some of them are uncontracted too you know lovely so uh next is jessica jessica beale how are you doing i don't know if this is too nosy so apologies but i'm just curious because um obviously you know braille's quite a sort of niche thing and just wondering sort of how you got into the whole braille production and you know a bit of your background just sort of how you know your own personal interest if you read braille yourself just that kind of thing okay well first of all i am cited i was never in this field before 12 years ago i have been asked that question and i wrote a I actually wrote an article about it a few years ago that got around a little bit but i was working i spent most of my life my background was a biology undergraduate i went to graduate school for bioenvironmental oceanography and then i got a MBA in marketing and finance. So I had spent most of my life working in nonprofits on the environmental education side. I worked at the New England Aquarium in Boston for 20 years, where I was the senior director there. And I worked for Audubon. I worked for Special Olympics running part of Massachusetts at one point. But I hadn't been in the blind and low vision field at all. My only connection, they said, well, what's your connection? Was I had a grandmother and how appropriate is it to right now that she was from Hawaii and in 1918, she was working in a theater and lost a vision on the job. And it was during the 1918 Spanish flu that reached Hawaii and 
I mean, it was a territory. There wasn't much medical. You know, we assumed that her optic nerve got infected somehow and she lost her vision. So when her children, which one of them was my mother, became adults, she spent the rest of her life um, living with them. Most of them were on the west coast of the United States, but my mother was in Massachusetts. So she spent three months going down the west coast, and then she spent a year or a year and a half with us and then moved back. And I remember being about six or eight years old, and she was very religious, a Christian scientist, and she'd read Braille every day. And she'd sit me on her lap and teach me to start reading you know, words and letters and stuff. So that was my connection with her. Uh, she was a very special woman. She could swim forever. She was the most happy woman I ever met and left a huge impact on me. So I, w- I had no connection to National Braille Press. I worked in Boston much of my life. I was actually working for Audubon when a headhunter called me about this opening here. And, um, you know, it was a national search, a New York headhunting firm. And when they mentioned National Braille Press, I immediately thought of my grandmother. And I said, well, yeah, I'm interested. And after two months of going through the gauntlet of maybe getting an interview, I finally was going to go to the headquarters here and meet the board and some of the search committee. And it's very unique in that the world headquarters for the Christian Science Church is a block from our building. So I'm driving down Massachusetts Avenue and right on the left is where we used to take my grandmother to go to church. And then I take a right and I'm at National Bar Press. And it's like, wow, that's kind of weird, you know, kind of karma, but that's kind of how I got here. So I made a long story, probably too long, but that's the story. Oh, it's interesting. Thank you. You're welcome. Brian, I have a couple of questions, if I may. We've heard at the Brailists about some transcription organisations that have 3D printers, and they've been asked to repurpose their 3D printing for coronavirus applications, you know, personal protective equipment and that sort of thing. So I was wondering whether that applied to you at National Braille Press. And secondly, certainly in the UK and probably in Ireland as well, the education system has been really seriously disrupted and relatively at the last minute. So there are orders that are basically just about ready to go that have been cancelled and that's put enormous strain on the transcribers and really disrupted things. So I was wondering whether the US had similar problems and how you'd been affected by those? Um, Sure. Well, the the first question, I experimented with 3D printing for about two years in my office, and we're not doing any 3D printing now. So we didn't have anything in in relation to helping our community um, in regard to COVID, at least. But on your second question, we do similar things. We do textbooks, as I mentioned earlier, and, and by volumes and so forth. And our student year, all of our textbooks for the student year, we we had gotten out in time because our school year ends usually mid-June or so. So we, we had completed that, so that was good news on our part. In reference to how the education system shifted, all of our schools have physically closed now. They are doing distance learning, um, and this is in the United States, uh, not just in Massachusetts. But what we found is in, in the test side of things, a lot of the state or national tests are being delayed, the ones that would have normally be given in the springtime, which would have been March and April, are going to be given in the fall and they're doing they're already giving us orders for the ones that'll be happening the following spring. So it's everything's being shifted a little bit, but it didn't impact us as far as the current time period, as far as what we needed to get out the door or not. And Terry, I can see you've got your hand up as well. I'm gonna to go to Geeta first because she hasn't asked a question yet. So Geeta. Uh, thank you, Brian. I have a 
quick question about the tactile calipers that you mentioned. Do you still sell them? Um, no, is it can it still be purchased from National Braille Press? Yes, we do. We have quite a few left because we made a very large order when we, when we first produced them. And I believe they're still $18. They're pretty good price for what you get. And they, those guys can confirm. I think they're pretty durable as far as how they're made. So, Yeah. So the, uh, the, if you need a metric version, then uh, RNIB has that. Or if you're looking for inches, uh, then National Braille Press. Okay, excellent. Thank you. Lovely. And Terry, your hand went down. It was that your question about the calipers as well? No. Um, somebody else put my hand down. I didn't. <laughs> but anyway, I just want to point out you have also sell greeting cards. I think they're Braille print greeting cards, Braille print magnets, which I'm going to purchase. And uh, you don't make it, but you sell the Braille Me, one of the affordable Braille displays. That's correct. We sell greeting cards for all seasons, you know, from holiday, you know, the Christmas holiday periods, you know, Valentine's, you know, Thanksgiving, all kinds of things like that. And they are print and braille and they're, they're beautifully made. We design them ourselves, many of them. Um, and we do do magnets that are very popular. And we do sell the Braille Me, which is um, an affordable, again, part of our whole theme of affordable, lower cost uh, devices. It's a 20 cell braille display. And we get requests from all over the world, believe it or not, because um, InnoVision in India, right now, Mumbai is completely locked down. They owe us a bunch of units. that they, They're unable to get DHL or anybody to get to them even right now. But we do sell them, and right now we only have one or two left in our building. <laughs> so, But we do sell them, yes. Right. So we're going to let you go, Brian. Thank you so much. Um, we really appreciate you taking time to talk with us and offering us um, a perspective uh, from your part of the world. Final question. What do you think the chances are of your, your gala dinner uh, going ahead this year? Or do we, think that's we, going are, to be we, we have made the decision that we are going to a virtual gala in October. And the gala that we were supposed to do in October, we have been able to move the comedian and, and the date with the venue till October of 2021. So that's good. But we are looking at having a really well-known comedian be a virtual gala with us and do some fun and I think live, exciting, engaging things. So we're actually meeting on that again. I had a call today and uh, we'll keep you posted. It could be really fun. Brian, do you want to just leave us with your contact info for National Braille Press? Absolutely. So National Braille Press, the website is nbpnovemberboypaul.org. My contact information is B like Brian MacDonald, M A C D O N A L D, at nbp.org. And I'd be happy to talk to anybody anytime. And I hope we can do this again. It was fun. Our thanks to Brian MacDonald of National Braille Press and all of the contributors on the Braillists conference call for allowing us to publish this recording. You can find Brian's contact information and links to the products mentioned in our show notes. And if you're an aspiring author and would like National Braille Press to consider publishing your work, you can email editor at nbp.org. That's editor at nbp.org. From all of us here on the Brailcast team, thanks for listening. And until next time, bye for now.